Welcome to Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. The introduction this month of the new investment screening regime marked a watershed moment for the government's powers to intervene in corporate transactions. In this podcast series, we provide insight into what's driving the new regime, how it will operate in practice, and its particular impact on those sectors most affected. This podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith, and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast series and will be joined by DLA Piper's competition, government affairs and sector specialists over coming weeks. In this episode, the third of the series, we discuss the impact of the regime on the industrial sector, including briefly reviewing the legal context for the regime, both generally and in relation to the defence, military and dual use, advanced materials and satellite and space sectors. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Matt Evans, a partner in the competition team, and Maria Pereira, a partner in our projects team and head of our defence sector group. So, Matt, if I can come to you first, as we've talked about in previous episodes, this regime clearly has wide-ranging implications for M&A activity involving businesses or assets connected with the UK. Um, Could you just give us a quick recap of the legal context to frame our discussions on the industrial sector today? Sarah, sure. So let me just give you, as you ask, a quick overview. So the new rules which are set out in the National Security Investment Act 2021 came into force on the 4th of January 2022, and they give the government the ability to investigate acquisitions that could harm the UK's national security. The UK has identified 17 sectors in which if the target is active, the buyer must make a mandatory notification and can't close their deal until they've got clearance. And Every other deal, pretty much, is subject to a voluntary regime. The regime applies both to the acquisition of qualifying entities, so share sales, and qualifying assets, so long as the target sells to UK customers, and it depends on the level of control you require, but that threshold is pretty low by international standards. I think the key thing to note is no deal or target is too small to be caught, and minority investments, even by a non-UK acquirer over a non-UK target, can be subject to a mandatory requirement if that target sells to UK customers, if it exports to the UK. Now, notification is made to a new unit within the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the Investment Security Unit, the ISU. The Secretary of State for Bayes, currently Kwasi Kwarteng, has the final say, but Bayes will consult with other arms of government, in particular the Ministry of Defence. The government is able to impose conditions on acquisitions, which it thinks raise national security concerns, and that can extend to unwinding or blocking an acquisition. It's probably worth noting that government is focused on national security risks. The current government has specifically flagged they're not using this legislation to address economic risks, such as job retention or creation. And finally, non-notification of a deal, if it was subject to a mandatory filing requirement, can result not just in civil penalties, so fines, but also criminal sanctions. Thanks, Matt. That's all very clear. So, Maria, there are these 17 sectors which are subject to mandatory notification requirements, and perhaps some of the most obvious of those that can potentially raise national security concerns are defence and military dual-use sectors. However, the government has always had the power and the right to review certain transactions in those sectors. Could you talk a little bit about how that played out in practice and how do you expect this to change under the new regime? 
Sure. And and you're right, Sarah, companies investing in the defence and military dual use sectors are already well used to dealing with governments to obtain approval for investment. This is normally in response to contractual obligations to notify government of applicable changes of control, and in certain cases to actually obtain consent to such changes of control in advance, with a failure to do so normally entitling government to terminate that contract. So as a concept, notifications and requests for consent or approval in this context are fairly standard in the defence sector. The new regime brings the UK into line with many of its allies and in one sense simply adds another condition to completing deals, often alongside similar requirements elsewhere in the globe. For a lot of defence contractors, certainly the larger ones who operate in a number of countries, these types of requirements will be familiar to them. Therefore, save for one question mark for me, which I'll put to Matt shortly, uh, the new regime is unlikely to be controversial in the defence sector. Uh, A company buying defence business will be keen to look after its ultimate customer, i.e. governments or the ministries of defence, and will want to keep their ultimate customer on side if it wants to continue to sell to them. For government and the ministries of defence themselves, knowing who they're contracting with is vital. It impacts on national security and security of supply. And defence contractors understand this and they understand that they have to be fully transparent um, in terms of the ownership structures that they have. That has always been the case where there has or hasn't been a formal approval regime. Historically, by and large, the UK hasn't blocked acquisitions of UK defence companies, although in recent years it has caused the abandonment of a couple of proposed acquisitions of UK aerospace companies by Chinese-owned buyers. But more typically, rather than outright blocking of deals, in the past the UK government has obtained various security undertakings from buyers designed to protect the UK public interest, such as limiting access to sensitive information to UK nationals, or maintaining headquarters or R&D in the UK, though query whether the latter is a national security issue rather than an economic one under the new Act. Under the old regime, North American private equity investors had to give various undertakings, a mix of national security and economic ones, to gain UK backing for their deals. The consortium acquisition of Imarsat is one example, as is the acquisition by advent of Cobham. Arguably, some of those economic type undertakings fall outside of the scope of the new regime, although the government may seek ways of obtaining them nevertheless. And that could be through tender criteria when tendering public um, goods, services or works contracts, uh, or in relation to publicly listed targets through the takeover panel. The one question mark I did refer to earlier, which I had for Matt, actually, is on the impact of the legislation on internal reorganisations. There are a number of large defence contractors in the UK that undergo internal reorganisations for a number of reasons. Matt, how much additional responsibility is placed on these contractors as a result of the new regime, given that this isn't something that they would normally be contractually required to report on? So is this something new for them to consider? It's a great question, Maria. And the short answer is, yes, it is something new. And yes, it's actually quite onerous on large companies, maybe who routinely do reorganisations for all manner of reasons. One of the controversial elements of the new legislation is it does apply to reorgs. Now, I think what the government has in mind is if a large international conglomerate did a reorganisation that suddenly interposed a new parent company but not a new ultimate parent company and that parent company was in a state that might be deemed hostile to the UK or may have directors on the board who may be deemed a security risk 
The problem with the way the legislation is drafted is it captures all reorganisations. The old legislation under the Enterprise Act didn't. It always looked up to the ultimate parent. So the new one is really onerous and there is a burden on defence companies and all companies under the mandatory sectors to keep track of potential reorganisations and if they meet the qualifying criteria to notify those to the government. What what I suspect will happen in practice is we're going to go through a few months of teething problems and learning for the government. They're already getting a lot of notifications, I understand, since the regime started a week or so ago at the time of recording. And I think during the course of this year, or maybe at the end of the year, they'll find some ways to make the process more efficient. And I think reorgs involving a, a set of sort of safe criteria, so criteria that clearly don't raise national security issues, could either be waived through or exempted from notification or at least exempted from a, a suspensory notification. As you say, Maria, this concept of having to notify government of changes in control and be mindful of national security considerations is by no means a new one for, for defence organisations and others. But clearly the new regime, as, as Matt explains, has got the potential to have some pretty significant logistical implications for them. And yeah, I think it's probably in everybody's interests that they find a way of managing that and avoiding unnecessary notifications in respects of completely benign internal reorganisations clogging up clogging up the Bay's inbox and, and creating unnecessary work for business. But we're obviously not quite at that point just yet. Uh, sort of relatedly, a question that I had was in relation to subcontractors. And, and clearly, you could have a situation where a primary contractor to the MOD, for example, triggered a mandatory notification that would clearly be required. But what about subcontractors to that primary contract and and when would they need to perhaps do a separate notification and a sort of sub question to that if I can is there any sort of notification obligation or whistleblowing obligation on those subcontractors if to report the primary contractor if that hasn't been notified how is those supply chain dynamics going to play out Maria do you want to comment on that yeah, sure. So if I, if I take the first part of that question, Sarah, and then I'll hand over to Matt as the expert on the whistleblowing obligations. Um, in short, yes, all suppliers to the MOD are covered by the regulations, and that includes subcontractors and those in the chain of the subcontractors. So i.e., you know, as we commonly term them, subcontractors of any tier in the supply chain will be caught. The testing scope extends to where the goods or services that they've researched, develop design, produce, create or apply are provided or used for defence or national security purposes. If the target meets that first test, then a mandatory notification is triggered, as you mentioned, if it is either a prime government contractor or any subcontractor of any tier in that prime government contractor supply chain, provided that that prime contractor provides the goods or services. The other aspect of this is they could be caught and and have to provide a mandatory notification if the target has been notified by the government or the Ministry of Defence that they hold or may come into possession of classified material. That's the other aspect. Um, Matt, I don't know if there's anything that you would like to add on this point. Yeah, there's a sl- we've noticed a slight oddity. Well, it's perhaps not odd, but the legislation is really and the guidance is drafted really widely on on supplying MOD as a limb for catching notifications. So there are some target companies that a buyer might not think of in a defence context where a mandatory filing may be needed. And a good example would be if the target is a catering company or a cleaning company, for example, and they're supplying catering services or cleaning services to a Ministry of Defence site. 
There's no military application of the goods or services in question, but nevertheless, the target has access to UK defence facilities and therefore a mandatory filing would be required in, in that case. So, uh, you know, buyers need to think carefully about their due diligence questions and, and cover off things like that that they may not immediately think of if they were just looking at a list of the mandatory sectors that are caught. As I say, I, generally in the defence sector, it's relatively straightforward whether you trigger a mandatory filing or not. There are long lists that one needs to go through, both military, which is obvious, dual use is the other area, maybe slightly less obvious to some buyers as to whether a target produces or or uses dual use goods. There are lists that the government publishes that you need to go through. There are four of them, the military list, there are two dual use lists, an EU one and a UK one, and the radioactive sources list. And so if necessary, you just need to go through all those. Just turning to to Sarah's second question about whether there's an obligation on a subcontractor or, or, or an import or any third party to tip off the government about a change of control, the short answer is no, certainly not under the National Security and Investment Act. There is no such obligation. I, you know, there's obviously contractual obligations that the importer will have uh, and the subcontractor will have in relation to their own arrangements with the primary contractor and the government, and it may be that they want, for very good contractual reasons, to let the government know that there's maybe been a change of control of one of the sources of their inputs. But there isn't a, a legislative requirement under this new Act for them to whistle below or tip off or anything like that. Could we turn now to talk about some of the uh, the specific definitions and exactly what they mean. So the new mandatory notification regime covers advanced materials. Matt, what are these and and how would an investor know if a target business is caught under this definition? Yeah, we've we've not found, and the government doesn't provide a neat, exhaustive definition of advanced materials. Many people listening to this podcast will be familiar with broadly what what they mean. Broadly, they're, they're materials that have a military or dual-use application, the government has provided some categories of the types of material in question. I'll just reel them off. It's advanced composites, metals and alloys, that's pretty broad, engineering and technical polymers, engineering and technical ceramics, technical textiles, metamaterials, semiconductors, photonic and optoelectronic materials and devices, graphene and related 2D materials, nanotechnologies and something known as critical materials. If you're buying a target that might be in any of those broad sectors, then there are some more detailed lists that um, need to be checked. One is called the National Security and Investment Act 2021 Notifiable Acquisition Specification of Qualifying Entities Regulations 2021. That's very snappy. And the other, the Strategic Export Control List. So uh, it's just going to be a a somewhat laborious task if you think the target may be active in an advanced materials sector of going through those lists. And those lists are very, very long, I'm afraid. In terms of how you use those materials, particularly if they're potentially got some sort of military purpose, it's pretty much everything you can think about. So it's research, it's development and production, uh, anything that could enable development and production, but presumably not electricity or provision of steel and and, and raw materials. But again, there isn't complete guidance on that. The provision of designs, materials, parts or products, owning, creating, supplying or exploiting intellectual property for the development of those advanced materials, uh, the provision of know-how or services and recycling and reusing those materials. I think 
because that guidance is still pretty broad, a target business is going to know probably if they are involved in something that's broadly known as advanced materials. And it may then be a case of having to approach the government and seek guidance as to whether the transaction is the sort that could trigger a mandatory filing. As you say, it may be that businesses need to take sort of laborious, laboriously go through these lists, which may be something they're familiar with already from sort of export control type obligations. I'm not going to ask you to read out the strategic export control list. I'm going to save save you and our listeners from that. Um, but suffice it to say, uh, anybody operating in this area and investing in a business operating in this area is going to have to think very carefully about whether the transaction is caught. And similarly, what about another broad category, space and satellite sector? Is that limited to developing and launching satellites and rockets? Or presumably it's broader than that, Matt? Yeah, it is. It's quite a bit broader than that. And I think that's partly because the space sector in the UK is is a burgeoning sector. We're obviously developing, we've got companies developing spaceports and low orbit satellites. And the government does have some recent experience. Maria mentioned earlier the Inmarsat deal where a number of pension funds and private equity funds uh, bought in Marsat. And the government under the old legislation had some concerns in relation to some of the communications that were used by Inmarsat satellites. So the government has provided some guidance. Again, it's quite broad, uh, I think for understandable reasons. So they're particularly interested in understanding does the target operate, develop, produce, create, or use space debris management? Uh, It's a pretty new area of, of the economy in-orbit activities, satellite communications links, that's more like uh, the Inmarsat deal, secure facilities, manufacture or testing of any of those facilities, space-derived data, but only where it's used for defence purposes, space infrastructure operational control facilities, and that could include ground ground centres and uh, ground support, um, or the provision and processing of space situational awareness data. When we talk about manufacturing and testing, testing has a pretty wide definition. I won't reel it off, but um, I think it's something that listeners will need to look into in detail if they're looking to go into the space sector. And as I said, the infrastructure operational control facilities uh, it can be ground support. It can be um, obviously a satellite control centre, but it could also be software for such facilities. Now, I presume the government doesn't mean word processing software or customer relationship management software. But they don't say that. And so I think buyers are going to have to err on the side of caution. Again, it could be that could be the sort of area where it might be wise early on to sound out the government, even on a no-names basis, as to whether that's the sort of deal that would trigger a mandatory filing requirement. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and I'm sure these things will evolve and crystallise over time. But here we are at the beginning of the process. And there is you know, inevitably perhaps quite a bit of ambiguity in some of these definitions. Can I finish up with a a sort of a broader question to you both and interesting to hear from Maria from a sector perspective, your take on on the new legislation. As we've discussed in previous episodes, there's of course a balance to be struck between maintaining uh, an open investment culture and environment, which, uh, you know, the government is extremely keen to avoid deterring investment and has stressed that the UK remains open to business, etc, etc. But whilst you know legitimately managing uh, national security concerns, maybe in this sector more than others, there seems to be a perceived threat of hostile takeovers and or takeovers by hostile states and players. And uh, uh, does the new regime 
have sufficient teeth to deal with that and protect us in the UK economy against those threats. You know, what is your take on how the regime has been set up? Maria, do you have any thoughts from your side of the table? Sure. Really interesting question. And I think a really relevant point too to discuss, because I think certainly historically the UK has always been seen as an open place to do business and and an open market for foreign direct investment. And I think that is still genuinely the case. And particularly in the defence sector, there's nothing that's really kind of isolating the defence sector from this question. The way protections can be achieved in the defence sector is primarily through contractual protections and contractual mechanisms. So whatever the legislative regime is that applies to the sector and to the business and and kind of investments in defence, the contracts will be fairly robust and will allow ministries of defence, prime contractors, subcontractors to take action where necessary. And hence why we've had the discussion around supply chains and impacts, etc. There is a lot of protection in there contractually. I think it's a really good question around this new act and what is the perception around it? Uh, kind of foreign entities or foreign organisations looking to invest in the UK, seeing it as a, an additional barrier? Are they seeing it as, well, it's just business as usual? You know, every other country has these um, these protections. And I think on balance, I think, you know, the UK is still in a good position. I think it's still seen as an open market to do business. There is a bit more bureaucracy to go through, if you like, in terms of where there is kind of transactions that come in under scope. But generally, uh, I think defence is still a place where other organisations from across the global want to continue to invest in. Matt, I don't know your views on that. Yeah, I I mean, I would agree with that, Maria. And I I think, Sarah, one of your questions there was, does the legislation have sufficient teeth? I mean, it certainly does. The UK has gone from having perhaps the most open foreign investment controls, certainly in the Western world, to some of the most expansive jurisdictional rights over such deals. So it's quite a step change. But that said, although they've now got a a lot of teeth to intervene, including in foreign-to-foreign deals, albeit enforcing judgments and really changing things at a global level will be challenging, if we put it that way. I'm not actually expecting the UK to show its fangs very much. I think for deals under the old legislation or in defence sector in particular, if they wanted to intervene, they would have done and they did. And I don't think we're going to see any change there. For some of these newer sectors, space and satellite technology being a good example, I think the government is going to still want to encourage inward investment from abroad. I'm not expecting it to prohibit many deals, um, potentially any deals. I mean, maybe this legislation will have a cooling effect on some investors. But I think by and large, it's designed to equip the government to genuinely protect national security without intervening too much at a material level on on investment into the UK. Excellent. Well, I'm sure Kwasi Kwarteng will be we're pleased to hear you you say that. <laughs> and uh, let's hope that's how it plays out. I, you know, for what it's worth, I agree with you. Well, thank you, Maria and Matt. And thanks to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of DLA Piper's series, Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. Look out for episode four next week, where we will be discussing the implications of the regime on more industrial and tech sectors, including artificial intelligence, robotics, cryptographic authentication, computing hardware and quantum technologies. And I hope you will join us then. Thank you.